Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's great to be back amongst you. It's just me traveling down here. Aaron and the children are at home, busy in ministry, and the saints at Calvary certainly express their greetings to you. And thanks, Tom, for the invitation. In fact, um, I, he said something to me which expressed the level of friendship he has. He said to me, I don't need to give you an introduction this morning, do I? And uh, it is a joy for me to be here to serve you and to reflect on God's Word together. So let's begin by turning to God's Word, and we'll read the text for this morning. And that is the book of Philippians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Philippians and chapter 4 and verse 10, we'll be considering what it is to have joy in the Lord. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we ask your blessing upon us as we attend to your word. Grow us in our understanding of your truth. Help us to learn what it is to find our joy in you. Because of Christ, who is our strength, who is our Savior. According to the indwelling and powerful working of your Spirit. And it's in the, in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, each sermon has a particular cadence. Um, some sermons are on just a few verses. Some are more theological um, some are easier to attend to, uh, the, the topic is a little uh, easier, and some are, require a little more attention. And I think this morning's message is one of those message, messages which is going to require a little more attention of you, because I'm going to be surveying um, the book of Philippians, and we're going to be landing in this last passage. And so I'm going to be going to some verses, referencing some verses so um, you might want to have your pencil ready or pen ready to write some scriptures down that I don't read out in full, so you might go back and reflect on those verses. But overall, my, my goal this morning is that 
Each one of us, wherever we are at, might progress in our understanding, that we might learn a little more of what it is to find our joy in the Lord, that we might see a little more clearly spiritual reality, and so have a better perspective on physical reality, our physical experience, what, what our life is like right now. Is this microphone really banging here? I don't want that to be a distraction. Is that better? Okay, if it's a problem, just come up here and fix it. I, I, it's not a problem. <laughs> fix me, whatever it is. Um, we don't want this to be a distraction from the word, do we? So one of the things that w- what we'll see is that learning to rejoice in the Lord does not require that we somehow ignore physical reality, that we somehow numb ourselves to our present experience, whether it's physical or emotional. But what it does require is that we see a, more clearly spiritual reality, that our, that our heart's eyes might see truth, might see Christ, and so in that find joy in our physical present experience. But before we look at the passage in detail, what I want to do is give a bit of the context, the context of the book of Philippians. What is happening in Philippians, and why is Paul ending the letter this way, and what are some of the things he says in this last section that are bringing to a close his argument and providing further instruction and hope for us? Well, we see in the uh, beginning of Philippians in one, chapter 1, verse 13, that Paul is in prison, so he's writing this from a place of suffering. Uh, life's not great for Paul. He's not on the Riveria. He's not at the beach. He's not on a mountain resort. He's in prison in the city of Rome. And the saints in Philippi have sent one of their leaders named Epaphroditus to Rome. And we see in chapter 4, verse 18, that the reason they send Paul is because they have a great love for Paul, they're invested in his ministry, and they are sending Paul financial support for him. And then when Epaphroditus arrives in in Rome, he not only brings the gift, but he brings news of what's happening in the church in Philippi. He tells Paul at the end of chapter 1 that the saints are suffering because of their faith in Christ. We don't know the extent or the true nature of that suffering, but life was not great, and it was because of their faith in Christ. In chapter 3, we, we find that some false teaching is swirling around the church, threatening the church. And we also see that there is a concern for their steadiness and for their unity in the middle of this suffering, in the middle of these adverse circumstances. So, receiving the financial gift, hearing the news of the church in Philippi, Paul sends a letter back to the saints in Philippi, and he sends Epaphroditus back with the letter. If you look in um, chapter 1 and verse 25, I think we see a very, uh, just a summary thought here of Paul's burden and heart for the saints in Philippi. In 125, he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's the summary of Paul's burden for the saints in Philippi for their spiritual progress, and for their joy in the faith. Not only in this statement, but in the book as a whole, Paul sees joy as a vital and essential part of growing and flourishing 
faith. Paul knows, he's convinced, and this comes out in this letter, that if the Philippians are to mature in their faith, and we might say by application, if we are to mature in our faith, then we need to hear this truth. And so as Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, if they're to mature in their faith, if they're not going to give in to grumbling and disunity in the face of difficulties and suffering, then they must find their joy and their contentment in Jesus Christ. Paul sees joy as essential for spiritual growth. For Paul to speak of joy in Christ is is another way to speak of what it is to live by faith in Christ. So Paul has his burden. He's burdened for the spiritual progress of the saints in Philippi. We also see in the book of Philippians what a wise pastor that Paul is. He wants to graciously lead them. He wants to draw them to grow in their joy in Christ. There's a strategy in how he goes about this in the book of Philippians. But before I explain his strategy, let me give you some examples of what it is not. If you're in a place of deep grief, maybe you've just heard the news of the death of a loved one, or tremendous grief at the prospect of a significant illness. And when 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 that grief has gripped your heart, we don't find it very helpful for someone to put their arms around us and say, it'll be all right. You'll get over it. That, that doesn't get, doesn't get to, the, to the heart. It, it's not salve. It's not beautiful words. It grates us the wrong way. It, it even provokes the level of grief. Or to use a very different example, it's one thing to be told to laugh, but it's another thing to be told to joke and laugh. There's there's a difference between being told to do something and being led into an experience. And as we look at the book of Philippians, Paul is wanting to graciously and wisely lead the saints into a place of joy. He doesn't want to whack them over the head, put them in a headlock and say, have joy, right? He wants to lead them to the place of joy. So I just want to briefly outline how Paul does this. In um, the first chapter in verse 4, Paul expresses his joy. Verse 4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul has joy. He's giving testimony to his joy as he thinks about the Philippians' spiritual growth, about their salvation, about the health of the church. Paul has joy in this, and he expresses this joy to the saints. He has joy because he sees what Christ is doing in their hearts and lives. But then in verse 18, he is talking about his time in prison, not a place of comfort. Not only is he in prison, but while he's in prison, there are some factions at work, some at work against him. And he says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
despite Paul's physical uncomfortability, despite the threats to unity in the church, Paul is still rejoicing. He also expresses confidence that he will rejoice. Look at the last part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. Not only is he rejoicing about the Philippians, not only is he rejoicing about the progress of the gospel, but he's rejoicing in this place of suffering and he has confidence that he will continue to rejoice. are curious. How is it that Paul has this enduring joy? Of course, we read in verse 25, Paul expresses his burden for the saints. At the end of verse 25, which we read a little earlier, his concern is for the Philippians that they would progress in their faith, that they would progress in their spiritual maturity and in the joy in the faith. So now he's expressing to the Philippians, not only does Paul have joy, but he wants the Philippians to have joy. He's just expressing his desire for them at this point. Not commanding them, not instructing them, but just conveying his burden and his love for them and his desire for their spiritual growth. In verse 17 of chapter 2, let's read that. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What's he saying? Even if I suffer greatly in the work of the ministry for your spiritual progress, even in the middle of that suffering, because it's for your spiritual progress, Paul says, he is rejoicing. He has that capacity. Why? How? Then, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul comes and directly addresses the Philippians. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He leaves it to the beginning of chapter 3 to actually get to this place of calling them to rejoice. And then he quickly transitions to give his own testimony of rejoicing in the Lord. For Paul, rejoicing in the Lord is an all-encompassing reality of life. Look down at chapter 3 and verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now Paul does not use the word rejoicing in these verses. But he is expressing the heart of joy. Where does joy come from? What's it about? He sees Christ and he sees the surpassing worth of Christ. And because of the surpassing worth of Christ... He sees everything else as loss and he sees the gain of Christ as everything. And when you have everything that's worth having, you have joy. That's why Paul is rejoicing. Because he sees that which is most worthy. 
he sees the spiritual glory and the spiritual reality of Christ in the midst of his suffering. And when I read this, these verses here of Paul, I think of Jesus' story in Matthew 13 about the man who's out in the field and he stubs his toe on something, he digs around and he finds treasure. And here's what Jesus says. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You count everything else as loss when you see the tremendous valuable value of what is most valuable. So as Jesus was trying to capture the heart of faith in, in Matthew, Paul is doing the same thing here in Philippians. He's capturing the heart of what it is to trust in Christ. What is the heart of joy? The heart of joy is seeing with the eyes of the heart, the glory and the beauty of Christ, and saying, because I have Christ, I don't need anything else, and because I see the glory and beauty of Christ, there is in my soul a deep and abiding joy in the middle of these other things that are happening in life. Then in chapter 4, Paul, in the strongest terms... Verse 1 of chapter 3 was just the warm-up. Rejoice. Now he's going to say it in the strongest of terms. Philippians 4 verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, if you didn't catch what I just said, I said, and this is a command, rejoice. The, The force here is quite astounding. Firstly, Paul says, Always. That's almost offensive. But Paul didn't say that straight out of the gate. It's taken him, as it were, three chapters, three quarters of the book to get to this point. And he says this command with this force, and he repeats the command. But, but this instruction to the saints to rejoice always just doesn't come out of the blue, does it? It's backed up by Paul's life. Paul has joy in prison. Paul counts all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul has demonstrated he is living out joy in Christ in all kinds of circumstances. His joy is not dependent upon circumstances, upon relationships. And so when he gives this command to rejoice in Christ, it is not an outrageous, impossible command. It's a command that we should hear, and rather than being offended, but to see it drawing us to Christian maturity. The command is a call to to delight even more in the surpassing worth and value of Jesus Christ. This, This idea of joy in God as being connected to faith is not a new thing in the New Testament. For example, in Psalm 37, 4, there's the command, delight yourself. In the Lord. Delight in Him who is worthy of your delight. 
But also as we look in Scripture, we see that this joy in the Lord is not a, a joy that neutralizes our physical human experience. Let me read three verses. 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So there's a, there's a sorrow about our human experience, about reality, the physical reality. There's a sorrow in our experience. But along with that, we might say, in parallel with the sorrow of our physical reality is a joy that is rooted in spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians 7, 4. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul is not minimizing the reality of suffering or his affliction. That is real. It's in the body. It hurts. But in the midst of this physical reality, Paul says he is overflowing with joy. I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, you can think a lot of things but maybe perplexing would summarize it. Perplexing. In 2 Corinthians 12 and 9, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. So not only does he put up with physical weakness, but he sees spiritual reality in such a way that he is able to say, I boast in my physical weakness. Because in the experience of my physical weakness, I experience something of a profound spiritual reality. While we're talking about joy, Paul's using the word joy. Let me offer a definition. You might want to write this down. I'm not going to develop this significantly. I hope Um, You'll be provoked from this morning's reflection on God's Word to further study, but here's a definition of joy that I find helpful from John Piper. He says this, I'll I'll read it at least twice, Um, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Let me say that again. Christian joy, this is a particular joy that is only experienced by those in Christ. It's a Christian joy. It's a good feeling. It is not merely an intellectual concept. It is something that is experienced. It's felt. It's a feeling in the soul recognizing the spiritual realities that we're talking about. It is produced by the Holy Spirit. It's it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's evidence of the divine life within us. As the Spirit, or as He, causes us to see, that's seeing with the eyes of the heart, see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. I think he's well encapsulated the um, issues at work as we think about joy. So now we come with that introduction 
that, that setting the context now to our passage in chapter 4, this final section of the letter. We get to this section and Paul wants to express his appreciation for the financial gift that the Philippians have sent. The Philippians have sacrificed physically to send money to Paul to support Paul in prison and the ministry of Paul. But see, if Paul's argument is to stack up, if if the argument he's making throughout the book is to hold up, he needs to communicate that his joy does not rest in the financial gift in and of itself, but he wants to be thankful and express his appreciation for that financial gift. Paul does not say, I have joy now because of that extra money you sent to me and I'm more comfortable, the food is better, and now I have a little more um, comfortable bedding. Now that would take the core of his argument out, wouldn't it? The foundation would be gone. So how does Paul do this? How does he convey his joy for what they have done, which is a physical reality, but talk about the spiritual realities that are behind it? So in verse 10, the, uh, the first point here, verse 10, Paul sees joy in the Lord on account of the Philippians. He sees joy in the Lord on account of the Philippians, not on account of their gift, but on account of the Philippians. We, we've noticed that Paul has called them to rejoice, and now Paul says he rejoices. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's not here rejoicing in the financial gift. He's rejoicing in their heart. The concern they had expressed through the financial gift. Paul's rejoicing because when he sees the gift, as it were, the physical reality of the gift, he sees past the gift and he sees the spiritual reality. The spirit of the eternal God has animated the hearts of the saints in Philippi. And they've been willing to sacrifice because they see themselves as partners in the ministry of the gospel with the apostle Paul. So, so Paul, as it were, sees through the gift and he sees, sees God at work in the Philippians. He sees them expressing a love for Paul. He sees them expressing a, a burden for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul is rejoicing in the Lord on account of the Philippians themselves. The source of the joy is not in the comfort that the money brought. The source of the joy is in what he sees the Spirit doing. You can't miss that. So this leads Paul to his next point in verses 11 and 13, that joy is rooted in spiritual reality, not physical reality. He's going to great lengths to convey to the Philippians, my joy is not rooted in the financial gift. So he goes on in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
See, Paul's stressing, it's not about the finances. His rejoicing, we might say, is not circumstance dependent. What's he say? I have learned in whatever situation. That's pretty open. Whatever situation, Paul says, whatever you throw at me, whatever physical suffering, physical difficulty you throw at me, it can't get at the source of my joy. So this is right in line with what he called the Philippians to do, didn't he? Rejoice always. And Paul says, I do rejoice always. How does he rejoice always? Paul is giving them insight into the the dynamics of his own heart and the perspective he has in his own experience. He says he has contentment. He says that he has learned to be content. I think this word content or contentment links to what he said a few verses up um, when you go home this afternoon, I encourage you to read the first few uh, verses of chapter 4, but he talks of a peace that surpasses all understanding. He talks about not being anxious about anything. This word contentment has this deep felt reality there. There's not an anxiety. We might say Paul's or the, the, the water... To use this now, the water of Paul's soul is tranquil, not stormy. Whatever is happening out there in the world, in his circumstances, is unable to shake him enough for the equilibrium of his soul to be disturbed. He's content. There's a tranquility there. There's a peacefulness there. Well, Paul emphasizes something here, and that is that he didn't get here by going to an incredible Bible conference. He didn't get here accidentally. He didn't fall out of bed one day and suddenly overcome with joy. He uses a word, the Apostle Paul uses this word, verse 11. He says, I have learned. Now, when you, you look at the text here, Paul emphasizes this. He says, um, in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. He knows this, but the knowing happened through learning. Paul says he learned the secret He learned. So, here's a word of encouragement. When we are in suffering and we are wrestling and striving and seeking to grab hold of joy in the midst of suffering, we ought not to be surprised it doesn't happen overnight. We are not to be surprised it's a process. There's a learning here. And we ought to draw encouragement from this. And this ought to help us be very patient with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
We're, we're all on this path of learning. Some further along than others. But we are learning. The learning comes because there's a growing apprehension. As it were, the eyes of the heart are seeing more clearly spiritual reality in the midst of physical reality. This is, this is necessary even at the point of salvation. Remember what Paul said in chapter 3. The only reason you give up everything for Christ is when you see Christ as more valuable than everything. You have to have your eyes open to spiritual reality even to trust in Christ. And then that begins this process of increasingly seeing the glory and the beauty and the value of Jesus Christ our Savior. One of the places we we get to drop in and see this learning process, as it were, as it's happening, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So please turn in your scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to look at this passage for a little bit because I I want you to see these as parallel passages conceptually in your scriptures. If you like cross-referencing, this is a a great cross-reference to put in. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul has seen tremendous visions. He's been given insight into into realities and lest he become conceited, this was his experience. This is a profound physical suffering. He talks about a thorn in the flesh. He uses the word harass. It would seem to be a physical suffering, and it would seem to be a physical suffering that was like persistently there. It wasn't like something that kind of every now and again, uh, maybe it was like a pinch in the back. Uh, Maybe once or twice a day is a bit of a, a catch. It seems to be this, this persistent pain harassing him. His physical reality was not comfortable. If you saw Paul, maybe you would see him with a grimace on his face. Maybe he might suck his breath and, oh, as he feels a sharp pain of pain. If you saw Paul, you would probably recognize this man is suffering. So what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, this is great. I love pain. No. No, that's not joint. This is not masochism. There's no pleasure in the pain in and of itself. No, he, he pleads, verse 8, with the Lord about this three times. And I get the impression here, this is not, Lord, this is really painful. Can, can you deal with this? And going on with life. I get the impression this is energetic, maybe beads of sweat, um, maybe loud. For three seasons, 
Paul goes before the Lord and he pleads, oh, Lord Jesus, take this misery from me. Take this unremitting pain from me. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus. And Jesus speaks to him directly. He says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's the statement. I'm not going to remove your suffering. I'm going to do something far better. And for us to even be able to swallow that truth causes us to have spiritual eyes to see. Jesus loves Paul. Jesus empathizes with physical suffering. And in the infinite wisdom and love of Jesus, he says to Paul, I will not remove this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. What does Paul do? I don't know what the time is between Jesus' revelation and this statement. I'm, I'm thinking Paul processed this. Okay, I, I'm wondering if there's some time here. But he processed the words of Jesus. He processed the promise of Jesus so that he could say, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The reason that Paul could boast, the reason that he could rejoice in all circumstances, the reason he could rejoice here is because he understood the spiritual reality of what was happening. He understood the glory of Christ. He understood the power of Christ. He understood the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And he had joy because he had an experience, a fellowship with Christ. In his being, he felt the perfecting of the power of Christ in him. And in that, he rejoiced. Now we, we are so in physical reality that it is so hard for us to incrementally grow in our apprehension of spiritual reality. The Christian life is the life of increasingly experiencing divine presence in power in our lives. And what Paul realized 
he said there's an alternative here. Well, actually, it wasn't because Christ is sovereign. But if, if there could have been an alternative, it was freedom from physical suffering and the loss of experiencing divine power. And in the wisdom and love of Christ, he, he had Paul suffer more so that Paul might experience the divine power of Christ by the Spirit. Notice here, there is not a decline of physical suffering. There is real physical suffering. Paul has this visage, I would say, that he is experiencing pain. But what comes out of Paul is not anger. It's not bitterness. It's not hatred for God. What comes out of Paul from his soul is joy. Because in the in the parallel reality of experiencing physical pain, he is also experiencing the sustaining grace of Christ. And it's because of that spiritual reality that he's experiencing joy in the middle of that physical reality. And so, in, if we head back to Philippians, and so Paul, with utter sincerity, can say... I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Doesn't matter what it is. And so he says in verse 13, I can do all things because I'm a super apostle, because I had visions of Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's Paul saying? Philippians, I'm no better than you. The hope for you to have joy in the midst of your suffering is the same as the hope I have. The, sus the sustaining reality of joy and suffering that can be yours by the Spirit of God is the same as me. We're here. We're, we're, we're on the same level here. Like me, so you might experience the sustaining strength of Christ. So Paul says, whether plenty or hungry, abundance or need, in every circumstance, he is rejoicing. Paul's joy in the Lord did not diminish when life was difficult. It didn't. And it wasn't intensified because of physical or material plenty. That's what he's saying. Well, having made his point now that joy is rooted in spiritual reality, Paul is ready to speak to the Philippians about their financial gift. Point three, verses 14 through 18. Uh, the, the reality, the physical reality of a gift, but he can't get away from the spiritual reality. He is thinking about the spiritual reality that produces joy in the gift. Paul doesn't want the Philippians to think their gift was unnecessary. Think about this, Philippians, they sacrifice. They, they, 
they save some money and they've denied themselves some earthly pleasures, maybe some food. And they send a gift to Paul and Paul responds, yeah, thanks for the gift. Didn't really need it. Your suffering wasn't necessary. But the spiritual, yeah, that was good. No, that would be disheartening, wouldn't it? There really was a benefit to their gift. But the joy was not rooted in the physical benefit. The joy was in the spiritual realities expressed or behind that physical benefit. So he recounts to them their partnership in the ministry. Verse 14, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. You've expressed kindness, he says. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Paul Paul is rejoicing because of the Philippians' love for Paul and the burden for the expansion of the kingdom of God. And so they were partners with Paul. And Paul is rejoicing in that. And he's affirming their partnership in the gospel. He's he's recognizing their passion, their joy in giving because of the gospel ministry. And so Paul has joy because he recognizes the Philippians' generosity. He recognizes their partnership in the gospel and he recognizes God in that. He recognizes the Spirit of God at work in the saints' hearts. Where does that love come from? Where does that desire for gospel expansion come from? Where does that willingness to sacrifice for the gospel come from? That comes from the Spirit of God. And Paul recognizes that. And he rejoices in that. In the beginning of the book, he prays that their love may abound and that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And Paul is seeing the fruit of righteousness come out of the Philippians in the generosity of their gift. So Paul has joy in the gift, not because it made him more comfortable, physical reality. He has joy in the gift because of the spiritual reality that is there. And that is the root of his joy. So now Paul is ready to bring a conclusion to this section and to the letter of the whole. Here are his summary thoughts to the saints. Saints who are experiencing suffering and difficulty. Thanks, saints who are being tempted to grumble and to waver. Who need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. And so he concludes with verses 19 and 20 where he is calling the saints to consider the spiritual reality through which their joy may come. My God, he says. My God. I've experienced sustaining grace. My God, who has done this for me, he will supply every need of yours without fail. The needs that a wise and loving Savior knows we have. Not the things we think are needs. It's needful I get a smartphone upgrade. It's needful I get new clothes. It's needful I have a bigger house. 
It's needful, and we can fill it in. We might even say needs in ministry. It's needful that we have more people helping. It's needful that there's uh, a greater budget. And there might be some things that could be helped, but that is not the crux of the issue. What God promises to supply is those things that are most needful. And that is his sustaining power. So Paul says, my, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. There's no promise here for the removal of suffering, but there is something better. There's something better. Remember Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 12. What is the something better? The sustaining power of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you that in your suffering you might experience my powerful enabling. So Paul comes to the conclusion of the section in verse 20 with this benediction. And a benediction which, which ends, we might say, not focused on the physical reality, but it ends with this clear focus on the glorious, overarching spiritual reality of everything. He concludes, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. This is not some abstract benediction. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Um, whatever that is. I, I want you to see as Paul concludes this section that this has a very specific application. God will be glorified in the saints in Philippi when in the middle of their suffering they are rejoicing because the only reason for that kind of rejoicing in the middle of suffering is the divine power, the divine presence of the Spirit of God. Paul has this vision, not of some kind of mystical, ethereal, sense experience of the glory of God, not of smoke machines, um, not of something intangible. But Paul has a vision of the glory of God being something very specific. A believer in the middle of physical difficulty who has a tranquility of soul, a joy in Christ. And Paul says, in that, God is glorified. And in the, in the glory of God that is seen by others, we experience that glory of God coming through us by the presence and the power of his spirit. Brothers and sisters, we need to have the eyes of our hearts opened more widely. We need to give our hearts and our minds 
to reflect and to meditate and to understand these spiritual realities. That our inner experience will not be dictated to you by whether you have great or little, whether you're suffering or whether you have great wellness, but that your tranquility of soul is there because of your vision of the surpassing value and beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't like suffering. We don't like pain. We, we long for that day in the future where there'll be no more suffering, no more tears, where all things will be made new. Lord Jesus, it's really hard for us to see that you love us when you bring difficulty into our lives. So we beg of you by your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts more and more to behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. That we might see who Jesus is in his totality towards us. Jesus who is our righteousness. Jesus who bore the penalty for our sin. Jesus who is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus who is pleading on our behalf at your throne. Jesus who is our friend. Jesus who never leaves us nor forsakes us. Jesus who understands every aspect of our physical reality. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your power and your grace is sufficient. And I ask that your spirit might be at work in our souls, revealing more and more of your glory to us. Oh, Spirit, thank you for your presence and empowering. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, thinking of the life of Paul, give us an enduring faith in this learning process. Give us a love that we might be patient with our brothers and sisters in this learning process. And as we increasingly know what it is to rejoice in all things, may all glory be to you in the name of Christ. Amen.